and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode, we will be talking about dignity and how powerful dignity can be, creating inclusive human systems. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Donna Hicks, who's been pioneering and researching dignity for over 10 years and is the author of two books, Dignity and its Essential Role in Resolving International Conflict and Leading with Dignity. Donna, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Susie. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Donna, you've had a career in international conflict resolution and diplomacy, and you've been on a quest, a quest we share, to discuss the powerful ideas around dignity that have come from your research and the ensuing dignity model, and looking at how it can help everyone, but more particularly in this podcast, organisations and leaders, to build a culture of innovation, compassion, and also inclusion. So for me, that's a workplace where emotions and relationships built on dignity can shape different, more collaborative workspaces where people can actually thrive in a sort of human-centered environment. And we were chatting before the show and you were telling me about your epiphany and the story of how you got to researching dignity and the dignity model. And I would love it if we could start there and if you could share with our listeners your epiphany in inverted commas. Well, it was quite an experience that I've had working, as you mentioned, in international conflicts. Uh, I was mediating dialogues between warring parties all over the world. I started out in the Middle East and then did Sri Lanka for many years and then Colombia, Northern Ireland. And basically, wherever there was a hot conflict, my organization at Harvard was asked to come in and do informal discussions, you know, Mm -hmm. not at the not at the state to state level, but it was, you know, let's see if we can't help these parties try to arrive at some kind of a compromise and and get the peace process moving Mm. along. So, you know, I would be sitting in the Middle East or Sri Lanka or any of these places. And as a a psychologist, a political psychologist, but nonetheless, a psychologist, (laughs) I was always more interested in what wasn't being said, rather than the discussion about the concrete issues like borders and and all these political issues. To make a very long story short, I realized after maybe 10, well, not that many years, but maybe five years into doing these dialogues, that we might be having the wrong conversation here. Hmm. And what I meant by that, or what I mean by that is that we were trying to work out the political you know, divides, but at the end of the day, what I saw was that there was another dimension being expressed at these tables, but it had no words. Hmm. It was a, a profoundly emotional reaction to what hmm. some issues were being discussed. And I would watch this and people would get so upset and they'd push their chairs back and they were, oh my gosh, I said, what's going on here? Hmm. So finally. I realized that if I were to put words to that emotional reaction that people were having, it would go something like, how dare you treat us this way? Can't you see we're human beings? Can't you see that we're suffering and you're just doing nothing about it? And so that that whole idea, I realized that there's a human dimension to these, Mm. not Mm. political, but human dimension. And finally, you know, one day my you know epiphany was, hey, wait a minute, this is a human issue, and it's about their dignity. It's about 
why don't you treat me as a human being? How dare you? You know, mm. but when I use that word dignity in my mind, it was like, oh, yeah, that's it. That's it. And because in the past, I would tr- I was trying to point out to the parties that the, these are very emotional issues and we should probably talk about the emotional reaction. And Susie, they hated. The I can notion. imagine. <laughs> they hated the notion that this was about emotions. Yeah. They would say, no, 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 no. This is mm. politics. This is raw politics and we've got to get. So anyway, when I finally screwed up the courage inside to present to one of the parties that uh, one of the dialogues that I was having, hey, wait a minute, you know, I've been doing this work for over a decade now, and I have a feeling that there are underlying dignity issues Mm. that are fueling this conflict. And would you mind if we had that discussion about the ways in which you feel your dignity was assaulted? And Susie, it was almost like the doors flew open. When I mentioned that word dignity, as opposed to emotions and all yeah, of that, yeah. trauma, they hated the word trauma too. There was something that legitimized their suffering, saying, yes, that's exactly what happened. Our dignity as human beings has been assaulted. Mm. And that, as I said, the doors flew open and we were able to have a discussion and people would, I couldn't get them to stop talking about their dignity assaults. And not only that, they didn't just talk about their own. They mm. talked about their ancestors. So, okay, I realized, bingo, I, I found the word. I found the language. It's the right language. Mm. And, and then I realized, wait a minute, I have to write about this. I have to write about this because this is so deep. This could be applied to any conflict. Mm. And so... I wrote my first book, Dignity is Essential Role in Resolving Conflict. And lo and behold, Susie, it hit a nerve in the corporate world, in healthcare, in education, organizations of all kinds, you know, non-governmental organizations, mm. governmental. And it's almost like I put a lang- put a word to something that people were feeling inside, but couldn't quite describe what mm. it was. And so I think that was my biggest contribution to organizations, Susie, that, you know, having gone into the corporate world, for example, and interviewed people and, you know, presented them Mm. with the dignity vocabulary. And because I did, like you mentioned, I did a lot of research on what dignity is and what it isn't. And and once I gave people the language to talk about these things, you know, toxic workplace was one phrase that everybody used. And I said, okay, it's a toxic workplace, but why? Mm. Because dignity has not been, you know, has not been honored and people are reacting to these uh, dignity violations. So that's, that's the story. And it must've been so powerful to just watch that unfold because essentially you'd found the universal key, if you like, the universal game changer to inclusion or belonging or opening that dialogue that doesn't happen today I was going to say in organizations it doesn't happen in lots of families or organizations or societies or but I mean that's such a game changer and it must have been because one of my first questions when I we were first sharing your story was how did they react to you putting those words on the table and you know the fact that it just opened up a door for everybody irrespective of who they were who their ancestors were what status they held is really interesting the playing field in yeah. that, Susie, you know, it was, it, I call it our highest common denominator as humans to mm-hmm. want 
be treated as if you matter, to want to be treated with dignity as if you're something of value. That's all human beings. And no matter where I was in the world doing these, it was the same, the same yearning. People mm. wanted to be treated like they're something of value. So it was, it was that universal aspect that you just mentioned mm. was really shocking to me because I thought, oh, yay, I found something for our international conflict community. But the extent to which yeah. it has resonated in all these other areas uh, was I mean, on one level, it was surprising to me, but on another, once I thought about it, it it's the human uh, reaction to being, you know, mistreated. That's yeah. what's personal about it. And and it sounds so simple now. We're discussing it as a given, but but you know, when you often when I work on inclusion, I talk to people about what makes us the same, and not just what makes us different. And I use the word belonging. But when I when I found the dignity research and the model, I thought, okay, this this is it. This is what I now look at groups and I think this what does the dignity landscape look like this is the language I use to myself and how are they feeling and what's gone on there and is it a toxic culture for them or not and there are two parts of that that I'd really like to unpack I think when I read your book and I the difference between dignity and respect was very interesting for me and I would love you to walk us through that because it's a real lever for me to understanding not only conflict, but how to create that environment. And then the second one was the idea of our need for connection and the three C's, um, which has also become a go-to place for me in terms of helping people to understand where they are currently in their environment. Yeah, sure. So let me just say back to what you were saying about how dignity is, uh, well, I was saying that it's the highest denominator and When you do diversity work, we call it, I don't know what you call it there, but we call it diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. And what my colleagues, especially my colleagues who are Black and people of color, Mm. they'll they'll say to me, when I, instead of using the word diversity in their trainings, they would talk about dignity. Yeah. And they would, because I, I truly believe that diversity is critically important to understand. We do have to understand our differences. Mm-hmm. There's no sidestepping that. No. And yet it's not the last step. There's yeah. another step, like you mentioned, there's another step, like how are we going to then bring ourselves all back together again? Mm-hmm. Because yes, we, we need to be respectful of each other's experiences and especially lived experiences. Yeah. And at the same time, hey, wait a minute, we all want the same thing. We want to be treated as if we matter. So that unifying aspect of dignity was what my, you know, DEI, my diversity uh, and inclusion colleagues would say. It kind of took the shame out of it, you know. And instead of saying, oh, you've done something terribly wrong, it's like, okay, wait a minute, let's all aspire. Mm treat each other with dignity. It just felt much more doable to them. Mm. So that was it. And, you know, that continues to be a, a powerful framing for yes. doing this kind of work. Yeah. But the difference, I think, between dignity and respect is is fundamental, at least in my, my way of thinking about this word dignity. Because typically it's used all in one, as if it were yeah. one word, yes. dignity and respect. But what I learned working with those parties in conflict and sitting at the tables and listening to them all say, we demand respect, that. we demand it. And I, I remember thinking, Susie, that, oh, wait a minute, I, I, wait a minute, mm. 
nobody can demand respect because I believe respect has to be earned. Yes. But what they can do is to demand to be treated with dignity, to demand to be treated as a human being. That's something I would say to them that we can do something about. Mm. We, we can educate each other about what that fundamental human you know, requirement is the baseline for our interactions. We can, we can learn that we can understand it, but respect, you have to do something that goes over and beyond to gain respect. And, you know, most people are like totally relieved when they hear that (laughs) you're asking me to respect this person who's done me such harm, you know, Mm, so say, Hey, look, you know, you know, this, this is a powerful distinction and, we got to stop the confusion around it because it does offer a, a line of resistance when you're trying to do this inclusion, mm. like they were mm. saying. And the need for connection. Well, some people think that 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 connection, that ultimate connection, is the fulfillment of treating each other with dignity. So once you two parties are are in a in a situation where they are honoring each other's dignity. Mm. Those connections just appear. And then there's this colleague, a friend of my, well, not really a friend, more a colleague, who's written a book about love. And she's a social neuroscientist. And she has demonstrated that those little moments of connection are really what love is all about. That mm. you can have these momentary connections with people. And they are actually a, a kind of a resonance that our body moves through that kind of connection. But what you were mentioning was my notion of the three, the three connections. Three yeah. three. What I learned, you know, every day I learn something new about this, Susie, whenever I do a workshop or. <laughs> That's whatever. the best thing about this work is you learn so much every single time. Every day. Every yeah. day. And I, I don't, I don't expect I'll ever know everything. <laughs> but the thing is that. If you want to think of yourself as a dignity conscious person, if you really want to say, yeah, I understand how important dignity is. Mm -hmm. I understand what it takes to get to honoring dignity, all of that. It really requires three things, I say in my book, connection, Mm -hmm. connection, and connection. Connection. (laughs) And, And so I call it, as you mentioned, the three C's. And the first connection that's critically important to dignity consciousness or being aware of dignity and the power of dignity is connecting to your own dignity, knowing that no matter what, I am worthy. I mean, I might mess up. I might make mistakes. I might, you know, harm people. But at the end of the day, my dignity is I am worthy no matter what. Yes, I have to go and make amends to people. I have to say, I'm sorry if I do that. But at people who think they have no dignity, people who don't have that inherent platform that what I call the emotional infrastructure inside that prevents you from, you know, being blown away like a Mm. tidal wave from a negative experience, that connection to our own dignity can help uh, stabilize us under the most painful and hurtful conditions. So, and again, and it's also knowing when you've messed up, you can say, okay, I'm a human being, I still have dignity, and I did do this person harm. But just coming to terms with that, it is such a platform upon which you can recover 
uh, from violations and recover from violating other people. So that's fundamental. Connection one. Connection two, of course, is being connected to the dignity of others. Because if you're a human being and they're human beings, you all share that inherent value and worth. We're born with it. And the third connection, I think, which is so helpful to organizations, is to be aware that you're connected to something greater than yourself. And if you work in an organization, let's say you you have an organization that is doing great things in terms of reducing poverty in the Mm. world contributing some wonderful service to the to, to humanity. When you're connected to that mission and that purpose, like I, this isn't just about me. This is about contributing to the greater good. Mm. And the work that I'm doing in this organization makes me feel like my life has some meaning, that my work has purpose to it. Mm. There's something about that, Susie, when people can say, yeah, this isn't just a job for me. I know that I'm contributing to the greater good. And it behooves people in leadership positions to frame for their employees that, hey, look, you know, we're doing something great here. Mm. We're making money. We're having, you know, we're concerned about profits. At the end of the day, when those three connections are secured in, in within employees or within leaders in an organization, profits do increase. Of course, you know, yeah. loyalty increases, productivity increases, you know, employee engagement increases. So it really is, I think it's a fundamental leadership aspiration mm. to help with these three connections mm. and especially say, hey, our organization has dignity too. And yeah. we are contributing to that, to the well-being of not just our organization, but of to humanity mm. and, and, and mm. federal. And Donna, what I really liked about that was that, you know, it does start from inside. Leadership starts on an individual level of understanding who you are and how you show up. But the fact that dignity is framed as an integral part of the emotional infrastructure, as you you call it, I really like that. And and it's something that everybody has. Therefore, they don't have to earn it, which is why I really love the distinction between dignity and respect. And that really made me think and rethink how I think about myself, but also how I can explain these concepts in terms of leadership and, and culture change in organizations. And I think the fact that you have to do the inner work, but you've you've got it anyway. It may be lying latent, let's put it that way, but you have to do the inner work and then take a step towards others. And I think it's so it's the unity as opposed to uniformity of everyone's got this dignity and it's everybody's inherent worth. So we're starting from a place of we are whole not we need to be fixed. And I think that's really important individually, but also for organizational culture. And the fact that, you know, we are going to use things positively and put them into a place where we understand what's going on doesn't mean that we have no accountability. And it doesn't mean that we're never going to get things wrong because humans are what humans are. But I think the three levels of connection really spoke to me in terms of, because often I see disconnection between connections two and three. Or connections one and two, depending on how much pressure the leaders are under. And it's just a very useful framing piece of this is how you can, now I'm going to use my business words, scale. <laughs> this is how you can scale the impact of understanding dignity and using it in a different way. So that was very interesting for me. And I thought, how does that fit into, therefore, psychological safety mm. and the conditions that 
leaders, particularly senior leaders, uh, need to create to have what you were just discussing, a motivated workforce that thrives where they are and, you know, essentially in heightened productivity because the more senior leaders are, the more their job is for me to create the conditions for decision-making and things to happen. And that's where I find your work so powerful in terms of helping me think about how that can be done and how they can actually connect literally to everybody, irrespective of where they sit in the organisation, irrespective of their job title, you know, for who they are. And I'd be really interested to hear some of the stories that of how you've done that in organisations. Well, psychological safety, the power of it, yeah. surprised me, actually, when I went into the corporate world. What I discovered after introducing uh, what I call the 10 elements of dignity to the employees, people mm. who are experiencing problems with their, their leaders or their managers uh, or their supervisors, and I would go through the 10 elements of dignity and I would say to them, okay, which of these are most violated in your organization? And the 10 elements are accepting identity, fairness, independence, need for recognition, acknowledgement, the need to be understood, uh, and safety yeah. is the other one. And uh, um, the last one is accountability. People want the person who violates their dignity to say, oh, look, I'm sorry, you know, I'm mm. a bad Of these 10, 10 elements, I would say to them, okay, which one is often violated the most in your, in your office or in your team? And 80% of the respondents, Susie, said safety. And I was like, whoa, because <laughs> okay. I was thinking. What were you expecting it to be? Fairness, maybe, Fairness. or recognition, okay. you know. Okay. People want to be recognized for a job well done or even discrimination, like mm. something about their identity, that they're a minority and they're not you know, treated the way the majority are treated, something like that. But then I explored it more and I'd say, wow, I mean, obviously you're not talking about physical safety. So what is it? The way they responded was, we don't feel safe to speak up when something bad happens to us. We just sit there and take it, you know? And one guy said to me at one point, yes, yeah, sucking up dignity violations is my job description. <gasps> wow, that, that's a very powerful statement. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And so they said they just didn't feel safe. And mm. in addition, they didn't feel safe to be their authentic selves in the work environment. They mm. felt like they had to be what their leaders, their supervisors, their managers wanted them to be. They couldn't, you know, they didn't feel safe to object or so. Wow. I thought that is pretty astonishing. 80% of the people said that. And so as I went, moved through into other, other organizations, same thing, Susie, same mm. thing. Safety always came up. And once I described what it was, and they said, that's it. That's <laughs> the one. And so how do you, as a, a leader, Mm. or a supervisor, a manager, whatever, how do you address these, these issues? And what do you do? And one of the things that I have done every single time I've gone into an organization, one of the skills, one of the dignity skills that is, are, is absolutely necessary to create a, a safe environment mm. is being able, feeling free to be able to speak up 
when something bad happens. To give feedback, especially up the hierarchy, mm-hmm. your boss, to be able to give feedback and to be have that boss or the leader in this case, have them receive the feedback in a skillful way. You know, not as criticism, mm. not as, oh, you're a horrible leader, you're, you know, you're all of these negative critical aspects of what feedback usually is. I mean, most people hate, in fact, we have a biological aversion to feedback. <laughs> and then I found that out reading evolutionary psychology. So the question is, how do you skillfully deliver feedback? And how do you skillfully respond to that feedback? What do you say? And there's a whole chapter in the book about giving and, uh, and the leading mm. with the book, the second book, about what it looks like to do that. But most importantly, Susie, just to kind of summarize what that feedback looks like to give feedback, you've got to take the shame out of it. You can't, you know, try to use the feedback as a weapon to get back at the person or, but, you know, and so the first thing that I say to a person when we're doing the skill building with delivering feedback is that you have to use disarming language, not, oh my God, starting out saying you're a horrible Mm, (laughs) manager, but to say something like, you know, we had a meeting the other day and I have to tell you, I, I felt like, you know, there was something that you said in that meeting about me that I was horrified. And I have a feeling you weren't aware of the mm. impact that it had. And let me just say, my relationship with you is so important to me. I feel like I have to bring this up if we're going to have continue to have a good working relationship. Mm. And I mean, getting people who are in a low power position to speak to the high power people. We, this just needs practice, practice, practice. But on the other side of it, it has to be received by the leadership team in a way that realizes, realizes one thing, Susie, and that is that every single one of us has blind spots. We yeah. all have blind spots. And the only people who don't know it are the people who are you know, committing the dignity violations. So we need each other. Mm. So we can see both from the point of view of the receipt of the feedback of the leadership teams and the giving of the feedback from employees, that this is a learning opportunity. Mm. This is an opportunity to help people see what their blind spots are. And on the other hand, help the people who are giving the feedback feel safe enough to do that, to feel safe that their jobs aren't going to be threatened or their performance review isn't going to be threatened. So this is a whole shift in the framing of what feedback is mm. from criticism to a learning moment. You know, this is going to help me as a professional, mm. as a leader. And thank you. I mean, at the end of the day, the ultimate skill for the leader in receiving this feedback is to say to the person, thank you so much for helping me see something that I couldn't see. And because if this happened to you, I've probably done it to other people as well. So thank you. So the whole idea is to move in this process of feedback from move into self-reflection mm. later to self-correction. Mm-hmm. So that's what it that's the goal. And to do it in such a way that people feel like the relationship can stay intact. <laughs> 
Mm. I mean, I think it's great, Donna, because what what your framework provides, apart from a tangible understanding that people can, you know, sort of get their heads around around a concept that is essentially quite complex, is they're starting from a level playing field, aren't they? Because everyone has dignity and the equity of belonging, inclusion is there. So then you're having a conversation to human beings, which is often what I use it for to introduce the idea of talking about shame. We never talk about shame and vulnerability and shame. And shame is responsible for so many dignity violations and so much silence around this type of thing that I think it's very powerful in terms of shame, but also in terms of fear. Because one of my observations is that, and it is changing slightly, but that a lot of organizational cultures are based on fear. Fear-based. Mixed with shame and power to keep the shame where it is. For me, your dignity model and the elements of dignity and the fact that we talk about violating those, and everybody will do it sometime during them, and then the wounds that are left and actually acknowledging um, acknowledging that is really, really powerful and already creates a very different conversation in the organization. And I think, you know, I, I asked myself when I first read it, although there is explanations and, and examples of, okay, how do I take this game-changing thing and put it into an environment that is quite far from that? And, and you know, as with everything new, you have to learn, understand, be aware and, and move into a space that's uncomfortable. So I'd be very interested to understand how people have reacted to it, apart from the, this is it, this is what I've been trying to say for ages and I didn't have the words or I didn't have the platform or I didn't have the vocabulary. And to see what leaders are doing with it once they've understood it. Yeah. Well, it's it's been mixed, honestly, Susie. When I first started out with this, I was asked by the leadership team to go into one department that was having a problem. Yes. You know, and I said, well, wait a minute, I think I better start with the leadership team first because, <laughs> you know, I think that it would be really wonderful if you could, you mm. meet with the executive committee, if you could all, you know, buy into this and it'll be much more, much easier for me to go in and say, hey, look, the, uh, you know, the leadership team supports this. And mm. they said, no, let's just see how this works. You start with that one concept <laughs> there and we will, we'll see. So, well, it worked beautifully in that mm. one conflict. But what I realized was, Susie, that the origins of that conflict there in the other department, way off, you know, somewhere else in the, on the campus, the problems started with bad policy that was created by the leadership team. There was policy there that, you know, mm. just provoked people. I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail, but the point is, I was right in saying, wait a minute, we need to start with the uh, leader. Yeah. And so I learned that was a hard lesson. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why I wrote Leading with Dignity, because I, I realized I had made a mistake. I gave in to them and I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. But nonetheless, from that moment on, I realized, wait a minute, I have to be sure that the executive leadership team is 100% on board with this. Mm or else I'm not going to do it. You know, I, I realized that I wanted to work with people who understood this, who got this, because at first, you know, I would mm. do a presentation for the, for the teams and they would either say, yeah, this is great, or oh, I'm not so sure. And then they would say things like, this sounds very touchy-feely, Donna. This <laughs> is really nice. But 
we need hardcore evidence, you know, in order to establish evidence-based. It sounds evidence. so familiar. <laughs> so I said, okay, I was smart enough because, you know, I am an academic <laughs> as well as a practitioner. So I, I had done my homework and I had discovered all of this neuroscience that mm. had Basically, the end, end of the day, the, the results of this neuroscience said that people who've had their dignity violated react in their brain in the same way as if they experienced a physical injury. So I said, okay, you want some evidence? I'll give you some pretty hardcore evidence and, you know, with all the photos and everything. <laughs> and they said, oh, really? So these dignity wounds are, you know, felt and experienced in the brain in the same way? I said, yep. So I said, would you ever allow your people to go around punching each other and, you know, harming each other physically? You'd never allow that no. in, in this organization. But you also are implicitly allowing those kinds of injuries when you ignore the dignity issues. Mm. And so that pretty much, Susie, that really helped turn ambivalent people around. And once they saw the power of it, once they experience for themselves what it looked like for an employee, let's say, to be able to give feedback to that person mm. to see how that relationship was affected. And by that, I mean, there's a sense of intimacy that gets developed when yes. you have an honest, honest uh, and authentic conversation about the way that you're feeling harmed by it. Most people will say, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. You know. Mm. Most people will do that and will respond to the feedback in a positive way. And then you've got the, you know, the narcissists who uh, <laughs> often will dismiss it. But mm. honestly, armed with all that evidence and armed with their own experiences of the transformation of the dynamic between mm. them and their people, it's pretty easy to sell. Mm. But it's the acknowledgement, isn't it? I think it's it it's the being seen, heard and valued around acknowledging. And I would love us to just stay on this for a little while around. You make a distinction between systemic acknowledgement and interpersonal acknowledgement. But I think the whole acknowledgement subject is really important. I would love you to walk our listeners through that, because for me, it's a subject that's a little bit like vulnerability. We don't talk about it in organizations. We don't go there. It's a hard discussion. But it, for me, it's a game changer in the emotional infrastructure. I'm going to steal that word from you. I really like oh, it, the emotional infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, because organizations have emotional infrastructures yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, they do, yeah. You shift from a toxic yeah. structure to a one that is, you know, creates safety. So, mm. and certainly dignity-based. So, Acknowledgement, I learned my lessons about acknowledgement from Archbishop Tutu, whom I worked with. I was just, I'm such a lucky person. I got to work oh, yeah. for years. Must um, have been incredible. Must oh, have been incredible. I could have another podcast about yeah. him. <laughs> uh, but the, the acknowledgement piece, I was doing some work with him up in Northern Ireland with you know victims and perpetrators mm. of the, the troubles in Northern Ireland. And he would just work with these people in such an amazing way. And I saw how powerful it was when he would say, oh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And then at the end of this one session where he was just getting people to tears with, you know, feeling like they'd been seen, they'd been heard, they'd been listened to. And I said to him, okay, you are considered the, the 
master of reconciliation. What does it take, I said to him, what does it take to put the past to rest? What does it take to move on Mm. from being so injured, so, you know, so violated, so wounded? What does it take? And he said to me, well, Donna, he said, when people have been roughed up, they need acknowledgement for the suffering that they've endured. They need acknowledgement for the suffering they've endured. So this applies to organizations as well, Susie. When you have have a group of people who have been violated by, let's say, an unconscious manager or Mm. leader, and that person then turns to them and says, look, I realize that you know, some of the things that I've done have been very hurtful. And uh, I just want to acknowledge that I understand that it was really difficult for all of you when I said what I said last week. And so that simple act, it's not complicated. But just for a person to say, hey, look, I'm sorry you had to go through that. And it doesn't even have to be, Susie, the person who directly created the harm. Mm. Like say you're, let's say you're in a in a staff meeting and you see somebody else being, you know, treated with indignity. You can go up to that person after and say, "Hey, I just want to acknowledge that what I saw that happened, mm. that you were treated unfairly right there, and I just want to make that known that I I'm, I'm so sorry that that happened to you." And you know, I do a whole intervention around acknowledgement, what it looks like. Uh, so it is critical. It is, and it's it's so often left unturned. And you know, when I f- I was first reading the model in the book, and I thought violation—that's such a strong word, but but it's it's true that that's what it feels like. And it sounds simple that acknowledgement can be so so much of a cure, if you like, that can have so much effect so quickly. But it's very, and I loved the story around um, Archbishop Tutu and the whole idea of Mandela consciousness. Yes. Can you walk us through Mandela consciousness? That was a light bulb moment for me in terms of yeah. myself, who I am, but also in terms of how I would show up as a leader. Well, again, it has to do with Mandela consciousness has to do with the acceptance mm. of our dignity, you know, that inborn value and worth. And as I said, that's like the first thing that I do normally when I go into an organization to be sure people understand that they have dignity. Mm. What means it doesn't mean that you have to do something to to earn that dignity like you pointed Mm. out it just means that no matter what i am worthy and the archbishop tutu said to me once when we were talking about our own dignity he because i was saying to him that the parties in conflict would tell me that their dignity had been stripped from them and he looked at me and he said stripped what are you talking about Nobody can strip you of your dignity. He got really mad at me for saying that. And I said, sorry, sorry. It's just what they told me. And because I actually did believe it, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said, don't perpetuate that myth. He said, do not ever tell people, yeah, you got had your dignity stripped. Because he said, how do you think we got through apartheid in South Africa? We black mm-hmm. South Africans. He said, we knew that our dignity was in our hands and our hands only. And that was the only thing they couldn't take from us. And he told me the Mandela story, that when Mandela went into Robben Island, the first thing he, that's that prison in mm, South Africa, yeah. the first thing that he did was he wanted to figure out what the guards were up to. Because once he figured out what the guards were up to, he felt like he could survive. 
And so it didn't take them but about 20 minutes to figure out what the guards were up to. They wanted to strip them of their dignity. And he said, Mandela said, I knew I was going to be okay then because I'm not going to let go of my dignity for any man or any organization or anything. My dignity is in my hands and my hands only. So it, that's why I called it Mandela consciousness, because it's so critical. Like you said it a minute ago, this has to start from us, yeah. from within. We have to first accept our own dignity, because once we truly do accept it, even those that we're in conflict with, we have to recognize they too have this. They may be, you know, the other thing I found, Susie, in my research is the people who are the biggest dignity violators are the ones who've been violated the most, the most yeah. especially in their young lives. So they have this early imprint of I'm not worthy. I'm my, you know, my caretakers mm. treated me badly, my teachers treated me badly, my siblings. And those are the people who suffer the most and who need to claim their dignity. <laughs> so, so it's learned behavior. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, that's a powerful statement though, isn't it? It's I am the guardian of my own dignity, oh, if you like. But yeah. also, if I put it into the next piece of the three C's, dignity is what connects us. This is our unity. And it becomes my dignity, our dignity, and then the dignity of the greater whatever community or organization or, or yeah. society, which, 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 which I find very, very powerful. I know time is running. I do have one last question because it's sure. a question for all organizations and leaders, isn't it? How do you measure progress on dignity in the workplace? Well, I'm happy to report that I haven't done that research, but my colleagues have done a lot of measuring, objective measuring of that progress. Mm -hmm. Michael Pearson is maybe, he would be a great person for you to interview. <laughs> he, he, uh, he is, and his colleagues at Fordham University have done a lot of these measurement indices. And mm -hmm. we're, we're, that's the big thing that we're working on right now is how to measure the extent to which dignity is present in the workplace how to measure whether the interventions around dignity are successful. So that's where we are. That's kind of the cutting edge um, of the research right now. And mm. I'm, happy, I'm happy to let you know once the findings and results come in, what that is, because we, and we want to distribute these yeah. uh, objective, you know, measurements so that everybody in any organization can mm. use it to their benefit. And that would be fabulous, but because I think people, to come back to one of your very earlier points, people still want quantification of figures and hard facts about, about these subjects, don't they? So, Without a doubt. And, mm. and we want that too. So. Yeah, of course. Of course. Okay, so time is running, but can I ask you, do you have a last final call to action for leaders and organizations looking to start their dignity journey? or looking at how to integrate it into what already exists, probably they will already have um, some type of D&I initiative, in employee engagement, those type of things, you know, well-being at work. So what would the next step be to actually understand this discussion around dignity? I think the most difficult hurdle for leaders to incorporate this into their repertoire, their leadership repertoire, is the vulnerability mm. that they feel, and you've said this all throughout this podcast, the vulnerability that it takes to actually apply this in, in their daily interactions with people. You know, for, for a leader to have to say to their, their people, hey, look, I want you to give me feedback. If I do something, I want you, I want you to tell me. 
that takes guts. Mm. That demonstrates a level of vulnerability that most people are afraid of. You know, that's mm. part of that fear culture yeah. that you talked yeah. about. Most people would like, what are you crazy? I'm not going to tell my people that give me feedback. But that vulnerability is where the truth resides. And if you want the truth from your people, the truth about you and how you're affecting other people, we've got to make ourselves vulnerable. Mm. And part of that switch, you know, it's like switching the default mechanism because the default is we can't be vulnerable. But vulnerability at the end of the day requires strength. We have to shift that definition of thinking that vulnerability is weakness. We're going to look weak. We're going to lose status. We're going to lose power. It really is the opposite. It's a paradox Mm. that when you make yourself more vulnerable and be more truthful and open to people, especially people you need, it's remarkable what happens. Empathy starts developing between you and Mm. them. And all these good things happen, the connections that you were pointing out. So vulnerability is where the truth resides, and it takes strength to to be vulnerable. That's the message that I would give to anyone. Excellent. I'm going to leave our listeners with that then, as well as that they are the guardians of their own dignity. That was my big light bulb as well. Yeah, beautiful. Donna, thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts, your research, your experience. Where, Where can people find out more about you and what you do? Well, I have a website, drdonahicks.com, and the two books I mentioned, Dignity is a Central Role in Resolving Conflict, and then Leading with Dignity, How to Create a Culture that Brings Out the Best in People. You can get it wherever books are sold, pretty much. So Excellent. And I would invite all our listeners to go, and, yeah. to go and read what's in there. We've hardly scratched the surface, but thank you so much. Thank you. You're so welcome. I enjoyed this very much. <laughs> Me too. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the insights it brought. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Mm -hmm.